This is Bloomberg Business Week from Bloomberg Radio. Hi, I'm Jason Kelly, and welcome to the Bloomberg Business Week weekend podcast. In this episode, I'm going to bring you news of the week, insights from the magazine, and much more. This week, a focus on Baltimore. It's a city looking to bounce back in a big way. Plus, a look at how authorities are prepping to defend elections from cyber attacks. But first, a look at the rising tensions over in Hong Kong. We get the latest from Dan Ten Kate on this week's cover story. Give us a sense of what we have seen there this week in Hong Kong. Well, this week we saw unprecedented scenes of the protesters going into the airports and essentially grounding all the flights. Um, in Hong Kong, this is very unusual. Um, I was in Thailand in 2008 when they shut down the airports, and that ended in a coup. Uh, that is not the, going to be the case here. China is firmly in control of the government here and of the territory as a whole. So taking over the airports is a drastic move. Uh, the government um, let them into the terminal buildings. Um, now they've stopped that. They announced a, uh, an order to prevent anyone who doesn't have a ticket from coming in. Uh, but they were fairly tolerant for the first couple days, allowing them to, to occupy the terminal. So if you were flying into Hong Kong, you would see masses of people coming in. Right. And this severely affected the, the economy and um, significantly raised the stakes in this conflict. So, Dan, you provide such great historical perspective being there on the ground. The story in this week's magazine takes us all the way, in many ways, to 2047. Help us understand what may be to come and why you picked that date. Well, 2047 is the date that the basic law expires. And the basic law is what was put in place when the British handed over uh, Hong Kong to the Chinese in 1997. That was actually negotiated in the 1980s under Margaret Thatcher. And the idea was that, you know, Hong Kong back then was a strong economic power. China wasn't that strong. Hong Kong is a relative, uh, relatively took up a greater percentage of the economy, much more than it does today. So the idea was that, you know, these two systems would converge and that the democratic system would prevail. Um, right now, we're, we're nearly halfway through that period, and that hasn't happened. But the fight that's going on is for those freedoms. It's for that system. And that system, nobody knows what's going to happen after that. That's a, really a decision for the Communist Party. There's no real um, obligations that they have to follow through on that. Um, but what we're seeing now is this accelerated version. Hong Kongers are scared of what's going to happen um, in 2047 and tomorrow. Um, you know, we've had significantly over the past uh, couple of years, we've seen that system erode. And Hong Kongers see a future where they're subject to the Communist Party and they're fighting against it right, right now. So, Dan, you know, we see these pictures and for people in the business world, for people in the financial world, this is not the Hong Kong that they know. This is a place that has been central to the global economy, a home to many uh, expats from around the world. What's at stake for the global financial system here? Well, a lot's at stake. I mean, Hong Kong is uh, one of the premier financial hubs in Asia. Um, you know, it facilitates a lot of the investment that goes into China and that goes out of China. The, uh, you know, the Chinese use Hong Kong to raise money uh, for state-run companies, uh, to invest around the world in the Belt and Road Initiative, which is, um, you know, a massive uh, policy for President Xi Jinping. 
So, you know, to lose Hong Kong as an international financial center, um, to make businesses wary of investing in Hong Kong because of political stability is, is a significant worry. I mean, it's a huge port that does a lot of business. And what we're seeing is that expats who have been here, people who have been here a long time, are very, very worried about how this is going to end. And many people think it'll end very ugly. And there's a lot of money that's already moving out of this place. And that's Dan Tenkate, managing editor for Bloomberg from Hong Kong. In the solution section this week, we take a look at security in an area that is going to only become more and more important as we get closer to the big election in 2020. The title of the story, Illinois versus the hackers. Dimitri Kassanides is here with me in New York. I got to say, I was reading this story. It's a bit startling. It really is. You know, I think we got a little preview when Robert Mueller went before Congress a few weeks ago to testify and putting aside everything else about that event. You know, he kept hitting on this message that this is a very, very serious threat that we are confronting. That's what the takeaway was from that report, first and foremost. And I think that when we get into the details, like we do in this story that Kardakai Rocha has written about, you know, focusing on Illinois, but that's emblematic of what's happening across the country. It's a huge problem that's that's becoming bigger and that is really hard to contend with for a number of reasons. Because let's start with the basics. Illinois got hacked. Illinois Straight got hacked. up in 2016. Yeah, one of two states that were clearly singled out in Mueller's report, and that is really owning up to the hacking and really trying to say, this is what happened to us, and we don't want to repeat this, so we really want to be prepared. Um, Illinois was hacked pretty seriously, but now what they're looking at and confronting is, uh, I mean, what's happening is that there's a concern that the hacking of 2016 was almost like a, like a practice run yeah. for what they're going to do in 2020. Um, and the number of parties is going to be more, the number of countries that are doing these kinds of geopolitical moves. Um, you know, we're aware of now it's not just Russia, you know, it's North Korea and it's China. Um, and so the resources that you need to contend with this are tremendous. And while a lot of resources have been devoted, it's a fraction of what's necessary. Right. I mean, we're talking sort of like low double digits percentage wise of what a state like Illinois would need. So let's talk about the electoral system a little bit, because one of the things I was reminded of in this story as well is it's incredibly complicated and it's really decentralized in a lot of ways. Exactly. It's state by state. It's localities. You have, um, you know, election boards and secretaries of state that deal with it. You have different positions and you really have to figure out how you're going to persuade, since it's not centralized, all of those people about the necessity to really invest and try to work together to the extent that they can. And that's difficult, you know, in some places that are not really big, you know, maybe very populated places, you have a hard time even persuading the local election officials of the importance of invest. Because again, the the first thing that this comes down to is money, right? And a lot of them don't have the money and they're not getting quite as much as they need from the federal government. So when you're saying try to find the money, 30, 40, 50 million dollars more than what you're devoting to actually contend with this, I think they look at it and they say, well, who are we and why would anybody want to hack us? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, that was such an important point of this, too, because you've got these local officials who are essentially saying, look, I know why they might go after voting in Chicago or in the state of Florida. And that's a sort of ground zero for a lot of this. And and you talk to the governor of that state, Ron DeSantis, as well. But, you know, 
a, a small county in Kansas or a small town in Kansas, they're going to be like, who cares? Yeah, but a lot of damage can be done there, you know, and it's not just messing with the voting machine. It's getting at databases ahead of time, messing with the roles, with the names of voters, um, ways that they have that will just really create a lot of chaos, um, no confidence in the system, ultimately. I mean, what you're also doing here is a psychological kind of war, right, which is going to lead people to say, why should I vote when this is all happening? Right. When people who are, are uh, you know, not at all involved in our system are going in and creating this chaos. And can I trust in anything? Right. So th it's so multi-pronged. But again, I think um, one big factor is money and money is a problem. The states and the localities don't have enough. And while the government has devoted some, you know, and it's not insignificant sums, but it's just not enough right now to deal with it. Well, and even as they look back to 2016 to try and learn some of those lessons, you have a disconnect between the federal government at the cabinet level and the states who have essentially both investigated and come up with different conclusions? Correct. There seems to be some evidence of a slight sort of difference of approach and wanting to really acknowledge just how extensive the hacking was in 2016 between um, DHS and um, and the states. And uh, we're actually, I believe, as we're speaking right now, getting further comment from DHS on this very point because I think they wanted to come back at us and the reporter is working on that right now. But um, uh, there, that's a problem that when you don't even have the various people who should be working very closely together and very much in agreement on this, not an agreement, you know, how, how does that help your effort when you can't even say, yes, we, we all are very clear on the fact that it was this much hacking, it was this extensive, this is how many people, counties, you know, voters were affected. So um, that's that's a problem. But there is very there is very clearly an issue like that in several of the states. Is there any sense, and, and you use this term in the story, which I really like, of what sort of basic cyber hygiene is when it comes to elections? Um, it's really hard to say right now. You know, uh, we've done some stories on this before. We've looked at things like new voting machines and the way that the technology, they're trying to beef up the technology. But the problem with all of that still is that you have hackers who are always a few steps ahead of the yeah. game. So basic hygiene is really hard to define when you're when you're playing catch up. Yeah. Uh, because I think it's almost as though they're setting the parameters and then it's and then and it's reacting to that. Um, so that makes it very challenging as well. Yeah, it is. Um, so it is worrisome and it is not, I would say, you know, we're not, the takeaway is not a very optimistic one at this point, but it's let's keep at this. We've got to fix this, you know. Yeah, really a, a daunting task ahead of all of us as we get as we said, closer and closer to 2020. Demetra Kessanese, thank you so much. Thank you. So one of the quintessential American cities in many ways is Baltimore, representative of so many things that are happening across the country, even drawing the ire of late of the president. Tom Maloney has a story in the magazine this week that looks deeply into what's happening there through the eyes of a redevelopment of sorts. Tom joins me in New York. Great piece, Tom. Tell me what's going on in Baltimore. Sure, Jason. So this is a story about Trade Point Atlantic, which is a development that's on the edge of Baltimore City. It used to be called Sparrows Point. It used to be one of the biggest steel mills in the world. Um, at its peak, employed more than 30,000 people. 
and then started falling on, I guess, hard times at the beginning of the 21st century, like a lot of other steel sites in the US, uh, and went through a series of owners, um, kind of finally went bankrupt in 2012 and was bought out by this company, Hulco, which is really more of an asset stripper. Mm-hmm. Um, but after spending some time at the site, you know, a couple of years, they realized that it could actually be incredibly value as a, valuable as a logistics center, um, which is what it's becoming today. So take a step back for me and remind me, and you worked on this story with uh, our colleague Heather Pearlberg, who is a native Baltimorean, I, I believe, certainly grew mm-hmm. up there and is raising her family there now. What is it about Baltimore that makes it both unique but also so representative, it feels like, of what's going on across the country right now? Well, I think, um, you know, Baltimore used to be just a real uh, symbol of American industrial might. You know, especially if you look at this site, they were building steel that went into the Golden Gate Bridge, Empire State Building, Rockefeller Center. They built ships that were instrumental in winning, you know, World War One as well as World War Two. Um, but Baltimore has been through some, you know, very difficult times. Um, some associations very recently with kind of urban blight, and obviously been in the news because it's been attacked, if you like, by President Trump. Um, so I think what's happening in Baltimore in terms of kind of going from this industrial past and then into the future with a kind of a future of, of, of global trade and um, e-commerce and so on is just something that is really happening all across the U.S. So in a way, what attracted us to this story was just that we thought it was quite universal. Mm-hmm. And so when you look at this particular development what you're also seeing is a different kind of job, a different sort of worker, a revitalized economy in some ways, but a different economy. It's definitely a different economy. I mean, the people who used to work at Sparrows Point really worked there for life. I mean, there was a company town on the site, the bungalows, where most of the workforce was located and it had its own schools, it had its own hospital. So you lived and worked at the site, you know, generations, families all worked together at the steel mill and they had pensions, they had health care, they kind of knew that they had a dangerous job which was difficult and there was pollution and so on but they also had security and they had a company that they felt took care of them for a long time and then that's kind of something that, that changed starting really in the sort of 1990s, um, going through to the 2000s, fewer and f- fewer people were working there. And you compare it to the jobs that are at the site now, which are in logistics centres and so on. And, you know, in some ways for the 21st century, they're good jobs. You get benefits straight away. $15 an hour is better than minimum wage in Maryland. Um, But at the same time, the people who work there now probably don't look at it as a job for life. They're certainly not going to be able to, you know, retire at 60 and get Mm -hmm. a pension or anything like that. And you have some big names, well-known names in the business world who are – have been betting big on this, the not the least of which is Kevin Plank from Under Armour. It's probably been one of the biggest champions of the hometown of his company. Uh, how does he play into this narrative? So Under Armour opened a facility there uh, very recently. It's one and a half million square feet uh, warehouse, which is, and it's, a, I don't know, I think that's like the size of 23 football fields or something like that, you know, just an enormous um, e-commerce fulfillment facility basically there. Um, and what was interesting, speaking to the guys at TradePoint Atlantic, they said, you know, even though Kevin Plank is a really big Baltimore booster, he was looking all across the East Coast for this facility and he just saw that 
Trade Point Atlantic is really unique in a lot of ways. I mean, what made it attractive as a steel-making facility, kind of being right on the water and close to rail and um, the interstate highway is the same thing that makes it kind of ideal as an e-commerce or logistics facility. You know, they can have ships unloading goods right there and then get them straight onto trains, straight onto the highway, 24 hours from about a third of the U.S. population. Wow. And that's Tom Maloney. So a lot continues to happen in the broad cannabis space. Craig Giamona is watching it all. Has a story this week about a $1,200 blunt and much more weed going upscale. Yeah, and I think what we're trying to point out here, and it's definitely a business story, is kind of how this is being normalized and moving into the mainstream, right? We're talking about an industry where sales were over $10 billion in the U.S. last year. So, this is becoming big business. There's 11 states where adults can buy marijuana. There's another 24 with medical access. And the latest sort of progression here is that you're starting to see a lot of luxury products and customized products. So, you know, we talked to a company from Colorado that will make... Uh, custom blunts, which is a, basically a cigar filled with marijuana. They sell for you know $1,200 a pop, and people are buying these for their weddings. We're seeing more and more people sort of doing this for bachelorette parties and just you know rap groups that are getting custom joints. So you're seeing, like I said, the latest progression here in the normalization of this industry is kind of the, now the emergence of luxury products. Well, and it's interesting, the celebrity angle, too. I mean, I, I almost feel like one of the subheads to this could be, you know, weed, smoking weed, it's not just for Snoop Dogg anymore. You know, like you're you're talking about Chelsea Handler, Jay-Z. Willie Nelson obviously is, has a longstanding right. relationship with marijuana, but... There's a lot of celebrities that historically have been out there with it going back into the 80s, 90s, the 60s, way before that, before, you know, when this was still sort of demonized and the stigmas were around. And yeah, you're seeing sort of, again, this is all about the normalization, yeah. right? And sort of more and more states. I mean, in New York, we're here in New York, it's still illegal. There are still those stigmas. You go out to California or Las Vegas or Oregon, very sort of different attitude about this, where people are sort of moving away from drinking. You know, the, the happy hour, people think it's crazy that people would go out after work and get drunk because they have to get up early and do yoga or go mountain climbing or do all these other things. And cannabis has kind of been positioned as part of an active lifestyle almost. And I think you're seeing more and more celebrities. I mean, Martha Stewart is a yeah. great example of somebody that has come out there. You know, she has a friendship with Snoop. So I guess he sort of turned her on to it. But just again, I think the important piece here is just kind of how this is pushing into the mainstream. And it's being embraced by people really across the cultural spectrum. I was also interested in even how this company uh, specifically got built and, you know, this notion of, they want to be obviously socially responsible. You know, it has to be grown in a certain way at farms with with at least one female partner. Uh, but in any case, you know, th these companies are are becoming sort of real, uh, but also with a very distinct uh, evolution, I guess. They are becoming real. And I think, you know, we've talked about this in the past, that some of the sort of the diversity questions are showing up in this industry. A lot of these companies are public now, don't have women on their boards, you know, don't have women executives. So you are seeing that. And you're also starting to see a bifurcation in the market, right? So I think we're kind of past the novelty phase here, if you, if you want my like broad opinion, that there was for a while, it was like, oh my God, can you believe that weed is legal? And there was just sort of a novelty aspect there and excitement. And we're moving into real questions and real businesses, diversity questions, luxury 
items. And, you, you know, like I said, just this becoming sort of a cultural thing that is being embraced by, by mainstream people really across the country, and obviously particularly in these 11 states where adults have access at this point. So let's let's take that step back and, and I mean, walk me through sort of where we've come over the last two years. We've got some big institutional investors coming into this. You know, we spoke also with Ryan Smith. He is the co-founder and CEO of LeafLink. They raised uh, $35 million from some brand name institutional investors. That feels like evidence of a step forward here or a maturing of this industry. Yeah, 100%. So about a year ago this time was when Constellation Brands, you know, they make Modelo and Corona put $4 billion into Canopy, which is the world's most valuable marijuana company based up in Canada. That was really the thing, I think, that tipped it. That was the inflection point. This was a big public company in the U.S. saying, we think this is real, and we're betting on that. In the fall, then, we had a slew of IPOs, U.S. companies going public in Canada. And since then, it's been a steady drumbeat. I mean, the big guys, the big banks, still largely on the sidelines. Federal prohibition is keeping you know, the Goldmans, the Credit Suisse, et cetera, those guys are staying away from it because it's small enough for them to ignore still, despite the fact that it's growing a lot. And they're just concerned about the regulatory risk. You know, the federal government still considers marijuana to be illegal and to be among the worst narcotics around right there with heroin, Schedule One. So it's this crazy dichotomy where on the one hand, the federal government is saying this is illegal. On the other hand, it's a thriving business in California, you know, which is the sixth or seventh largest economy in the world, largest marijuana market in the world now. And business is booming there. And you're seeing now family offices are showing up. More and more hedge funds have gotten interested. You know, Josh Kushner's Thrive Capital led this round for LeafLink. It was the first time they've invested in marijuana. So slowly but surely, I think more and more people see the growth, see the potential here across a, a variety of industries whether it's medical, consumer, mm-hmm. et cetera, and are, and are starting to put money in. I think just because, you know, for FOMO, they don't, they see a lot of growth here and don't want to have missed out on this. And that's Craig Giamona, our man tracking all things cannabis from the big guys to the startups and now apparently in the luxury sector. Sticking with the growing cannabis industry, I spoke with Ryan Smith. He's the CEO over at LeafLink. A new round of funding. Congratulations on that. And it's a big one. $35 million. Series B. Some big name investors uh, coming in here, most notably Thrive Capital. And what's interesting, just talking about funding for a second, is you have been the entree for some very well-known investors into this space. Talk about that. We're really proud our team is to be that bridge that connects these institutional quality investors to the cannabis space. I mean, we are, at the end of the day, a technology company, so that's like an that's a valuable way for them to begin to like look into the space and participate. But we want to work with, and we think of ourselves as this professional tech outfit to supply our clients the best solution. And so we want the best investors as well. So give me the basic pitch on the company. LeafLink's a B2B wholesale marketplace. We connect over 1,200 brands in 22 different territories with four out of five licensed retailers in the U.S. Use case would be if you're a purchasing manager at a dispensary, you need to buy from 30 to 50 brands to stock your shelves. You can do that all in one cart on LeafLink. And so uh, one of the big deals it feels like about this new round is you're going to be scaling LeafLink Financial it feels like that piece of it, the financial piece, compliance, all of those issues has got to be one of the most complicated things to tackle in this ecosystem. Absolutely. We've always done our best to follow all the rules that do exist, and we work closely with regulators and counsel to make sure that things that we're putting in the market are following the regulations that are there. Uh, Finance. So, for example, if we were a marketplace selling shoes, 
we could plug in PayPal or Stripe and we could use USPS or DHL. None of those things are available to our clients and a lot of our clients are even unbanked. So we had to come up with a solution that was somewhat removed but also compliant and that was what gave rise to LeafLink Financial that allows them to now pay for their goods through the marketplace. And so walk me through how you even go about building something like this because as you say, it's not like selling shoes or books or anything that we're used to buying uh, online and and through those sorts of payment systems. For us, the first three and a half years of the company were really all about being very close with our clients and building something that was valuable to them. People were playing, paying a flat fee to be on the software platform, so we were not a part of the transactions at all. What we found was it's not that banks and financial institutions can't serve cannabis companies. It's that there's a higher level of due diligence and KYC requirements mm-hmm. for them to do that. Know your customer, right? Exactly. Yeah. Know your customer. And so what we built is, and we very deeply know our customers. We know their licensed companies. We know the businesses they do. We personally know the individuals behind those companies. And so we built out a solution that takes advantage of all of those things that really only we have as this leading marketplace to provide them to banks and institutions that lessens the amount of manual work they need to do to service these companies. All right. Take me back to the beginning. How'd you get this idea? My co-founder and I, Zach, was previously uh, at eBay for a bit beforehand. I've been selling things online since I was like in sixth grade. My parents would say things would go missing in the house, and it was probably in Ryan's PayPal account. So I always loved B2C marketplaces. Uh, Zach and I had each started independently companies that we sold in the same year in 2014. And we began thinking about like what is a way we can really virtualize the supply chain. Why are B2B marketplaces not a thing for individuals? We go home, we shop on all these leading B2C marketplaces for anything and everything. We go to work and we're emailing, writing POs, texting, faxes sometimes. And so we thought, what's a great place to bring this value from the get-go? And if we were to launch you know, a B2B marketplace in the paper industry, it's a very you know, multi-generational, institutionalized one. Our space itself is a startup with young, progressive thinkers. And so we built the marketplace here. And so let's talk about that ecosystem a little bit because we have had some very highly valued public companies sort of come onto the scene, some of which you're associated with, Canopy, yep. uh, most notably. Talk about that relationship a little bit. So we have been growing over the last, like I said, three and a half years in the States. We knew that you know now that Canada is federally legal, that was going to be a market for us. And so we reached out to by Canopy Rivers, which is the venture arm of Canopy Growth, the largest marijuana company in the world, uh, to begin to open up some international markets. And they are operational, I think, in over 12 international territories now. And so we, we formed this JV with them to launch our software into these markets that are still trying to find their way amongst regulators for how to be diligent and have like you know transparency. Um, and so we opened up an office in Toronto around around that effort. And that was CEO of LeafLink and co-founder Ryan Smith. Facebook, here's a surprise, might actually be getting stronger as regulatory scrutiny swirls around the company. We get more from Sarah Fryer. Think about Facebook and what makes Facebook work. This $70 billion in revenue advertising business this year, it's all about data. And the data that Facebook has compiled, not just from its users, but from third parties, from tracking people around the internet, understanding what they click on and, and watch and, and care about, that is the, the value at the center of their advertising business. And so when the FTC comes and tells them, you can't share that data with anybody else, 
Well, great. <laughs> Facebook loves that in a way. I mean, they're, they're big enough now that they don't really need to rely on other companies building other kinds of products, sharing their data with those in order to grow their network. Um, now, to explain that a little bit, I mean, there used to be a reason for Facebook to share its data with all of the developers of games for Facebook and quizzes and, and all the things you remember from the Facebook of, of five or six years ago. But now the company is big enough that it really doesn't need to rely on that network. And so the FTC is really punishing a version of Facebook that no longer exists. It's such a provocative idea. And I loved reading this story because it really sort of turned it on its head and made me think about this in a whole different way. You go back to the Cambridge Analytica story, which is part of the reason why we're even talking about this, right? Right. So in Cambridge Analytica, there was an outside developer who used a Facebook personality quiz tool to gather information on millions of people, not just the people who used the quiz, but their friends, and then sold that data to Cambridge Analytica, this political uh, consultancy that worked for, for conservative campaigns, including Trump's. And that was an uproar. But that happened back before 2015. And the fact that Facebook knew about it and didn't do anything about it, that's a big problem. But, you know, we're going to continue to see leaks like that from the past, these these breaches of user data that will come back to haunt Facebook. But the Facebook of today, the, the Facebook of the future, is not the same company. And so when regulators think about how to, to fix the current problem of this company with tremendous amount of power over our society and how we, how we think and what kind of information we get and who we connect with, that Facebook of today is not the one sharing data with third parties. It's not the one that's relying on people to make personality quiz apps. In fact, it's just trying to become a self-sufficient network of its, of its own making and, and combine its messaging apps so that they have this sort of mega network to work with. So let's talk about that mega network because that's one of the most fascinating developments of late, which is that Instagram and WhatsApp are really being fully integrated, renamed, rebranded in a way, and at a time when the founders of those companies, they're gone. Well, one of the other fundamental arguments of my piece is that Facebook is going to use this argument about privacy for, that the FTC is imposing upon them. You know, we need to do this for your privacy as an excuse to do all these other things that are just going to make its business stronger. So in the case of integrating these messaging apps and renaming them for Facebook, it'll be called Instagram from Facebook, WhatsApp from Facebook. Facebook says it's doing that to increase transparency, and it says that once those apps are linked together, they will be able to implement encryption. So privacy is so strong that not even the company can see it. The thing that happens, though, is is they have this much bigger network, and it's not really about the privacy after all. It's about creating that network and creating that size to make Facebook even more powerful. And you can tell because internally in the company, it's, it's not discussed in terms of privacy. That's just the marketing spin on it. Right. Well, and as you point out, by fully integrating all of these messaging apps into the larger Facebook, that only magnifies in some ways, maybe exponentially, the data that Facebook is going to have under its umbrella, right? Right. And a lot of people who use these services 
may not like the fact that Facebook knows who they are across Instagram and WhatsApp and is able to combine those forces of data, right? I mean, a person who uses Instagram for an anonymously named account that may be a joke account or something about a private part of their lives that they don't want their you know relatives to see very different than how they use Facebook which is the sort of public facing real identity place and so once Facebook combines those identities they'll be able to know a lot more about who we are in multiple facets of our lives as opposed to just the Facebook side and and that's why they don't really need to rely on other companies and other companies data sharing in order to become so much more powerful. So, Sarah, when you think about this mega network, you think about regulators, you think about lawmakers, you think about politicians as we get closer and closer to the 2020 election. How loud is the break it up drumbeat at this point? I mean, the break it up drumbeat is is more of a political line right now, and it's not really coming to fruition. And as regulators and politicians talk about break it up, break it up, break it up, the company is only making it more difficult to break up by integrating these things. We reported, for example, that Instagram direct messaging is going to be built on top of Facebook Messenger. So it'll still look like Instagram direct, but the back end of it, the really the infrastructure that powers it will be Facebook Messenger. And so you'll see a lot more moves like that that just make this this organism one one item, not multiple. And that makes it very difficult to argue for them to be broken up. Right. Amazing. Well it's provocative as always. Love catching up with you, Sarah Fryer in San Francisco. So one of the last great corporate rivalries out there has to be Intel versus AMD battling for dominance in the world of semiconductors. Nobody knows it better than Ian King. And this week, he brings us a story from AMD's perspective and where they are under the leadership of their relatively new CEO, Lisa Su. So, Ian, tell me about Lisa Su. She is an engineer. I mean, she's the first female leader in the 50-year history of the chip industry. She's got probably one of the sort of most gold-tinted resumes you could possibly have in the engineering world, MIT, PhD, and, you know, up through the ranks at IBM, Texas Instruments. She, She has a pedigree, and now she's responsible for trying to bring AMD back from the brink and, and finally make it a company that actually acts like a company rather than just another also ran. All right, so take us back, because as I said at the top, this really is one of the great rivalries, but you have to go back decades to really understand the roots of it. Yeah, I mean, both companies were founded within a year of each other. Um, All of their leadership came from out of the same sort of stable of of working back in in the day in the same companies. Um, Jerry Sanders was a frustrated actor, you know, very very high on his own appearance, his own confidence and his own sort of talents and, and sort of was the sort of flamboyant, um, personality in the semiconductor industry, if, if you could say such a thing. Um, as you mentioned, you know, the, the company really came into being as kind of a second source for Intel, and unfortunately it's always kind of suffered in that light throughout its history. Um, it's always been a, a percentage of Intel in terms of resources, in terms of size, in terms of market share. And, you know, Jerry tried to make up for that with 
sort of flamboyancy. He would regularly, you know, do things like create posters where he was Indiana Jones and uh, Intel's Andy Grove was this character sat to the side shrieking and scared. And, you know, unfortunately, though, for, for those who invested in AMD, quite a lot of the time, the things that he would promise kind of wouldn't come true. And over the years, AMD has kind of lurched in and out of profitability. And really, it enjoyed its kind of peak about 12 years ago when it really had some designs that Intel hadn't seen coming, got up to sort of mid-20s, market share, got became very profitable, really hurt Intel's profitability. But f really from then onwards has kind of been on this long, slow descent until Lisa Su came along. Right. So in that interim period, there were, what, three different uh, CEOs before she came into the picture. What has she done to right the ship? It's prosaic and it's not very interesting. And you could say, well, it's, it's the kind of thing that the leadership of any company should be doing, which is basically making sure the trains run on time, holding people accountable. And when I spoke to her, you know, trying to get her to give you sort of anecdotes about, oh, this crucial moment, this aha moment, none of that's going on. All she's doing is doing what anybody who's running in a chip company should be doing, which is making sure things happen when they should, holding people accountable. I mean, I've been told from people who've worked for her that if you turn up to a meeting and you haven't done what you said you're going to do, it's a pretty uncomfortable experience. And again, that's, that's not rocket science, but it really shows that in the past, the company was perhaps a little bit too loose um, in its aspirations and in its execution. And if you talk to her, talk to the guys that work with her, it's very hard to go more than 30 seconds without hearing the word execution. Big event that they had where they introduced their new server chips, of course, there was a bit of, you know, chest thumping went on, but a lot less than in the past. And she really ended the proceedings by saying, look, this is the beginning. We're going to be trying harder. We're going to have the next one after that and the next one coming. So really a very deep change of tone, um, a much more subdued right. tone, but one that has people convinced. So, Ian, what are investors saying? Because as you say, they've been disappointed throughout the years with this sort of up and down. What are you hearing from the buy side and even the analysts who follow this company? Yeah, I mean, you look at the share price that tells its own story. Um, clearly, the expectation is that this run is here to stay. It's been a little bit volatile and being, you know, as you would expect from AMD, they've had huge run ups and huge um, declines on not a lot of news. But in general, I mean, I spoke to one fund manager who said, look, I don't want a rock star. We've had rock stars or people who thought they were rock stars running this company in the past, and it never turned out well. Much more comfortable with somebody who's comfortable in her own skin, who's just focused on the job. Look at the other side of the coin, the Intel side. Obviously, that's a company, and you and I have talked about this several times over the last couple of years. It's had some management uh, challenges. It's also had had some technical challenges. Nobody's ever seen this from Intel. I mean, again, like any company, they have their ups and their downs. But this uh, at least appears to be fundamental. This is the thing that they've been used to beat up everybody. AMD is remarkable in the fact that it's a survivor. You'll remember back in the day, all manner of companies used to try to compete with Intel in microprocessors. All of them are gone. All of, nobody could stand in their way. And that was because they ran the best factories on the planet. That was their boast, and it was hard to argue with it. Normally, sort of a year, 18 months, and we're on to the next so-called node of, of, of processing. And that 
gives not just cheaper costs as it does in other industries, but it makes these chips actually perform better. Nobody was even coming close to what Intel was capable of in these high-performance chips. But now, 2017 was when they promised 10 nanometer. Not going to happen in server chips, their most important products, until next year. One of the things you point out in your story, which I think is so fascinating, is that Lisa Sue and her team made a key decision around their own manufacturing, which has really allowed them to step in at a time, as you point out, when Intel has stumbled. Yeah, I mean, this is an example of her pragmatism um, and what people tell us about her, which is she, you know, she makes decisions not based upon what you know, becoming a mini Intel or trying to compete with Intel on its own terms, but doing the best for her company and positioning themselves. And what she's done is shift their production to a company called Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing, TSMC, as, as everybody knows it. And that company has really pulled ahead in the last couple of years, if you believe the analysts and if you believe its own results. And really that company, which only does outsource manufacturing, is benefiting from a, a fundamental shift in the chip industry. It's the vast majority of volume now comes from smartphones, from smartphone processors, from smartphone memory and everything else. And a lot of what goes on in chip factories, of course, is pure science. It's material science. It's applied physics. It's applied chemistry. But it's also experience-based, putting the machines in the right order. You know, just the simple blocking and tackling of making sure that these things are working flat out. TSMC apparently is the best at doing that right now. AMD is using their factories and has, in theory, better manufacturing than Intel. Well, more to come, I'm sure. In the meantime, a really great look at one of the great rivalries in the chip industry, maybe in the broader corporate world. Ian King, our chip guru, thank you so much. All right, our other big story this week, Wall Street whiplash, sell-off for stocks and sounding the alarm after both the U.S. and U.K. yield curves inverted. That's historically a harbinger for recession. Economics Editor Peter Coy is here with me to make sense of it all. All right, help me understand, help us all understand what happened this week. We hear inverted yield curve, we hear recession, break it down. First of all, what is an inverted yield curve? It means that the long-term interest rates are lower than the short-term interest rates, which is a reversal of the normal condition. It can be a harbinger of recession. And what happened this week, we'd already had an inversion between the three-month and the 10-year. Now the two-year and the 10-year inversion, which was considered a stronger signal of an impending recession, uh, not necessarily tomorrow, but maybe in 18 months or so. And so that was the big news of the week, and it, it was one of the big factors in why the stock market did so badly. Right. All right. So this is a, an economic story, obviously. It's a business story. It's a market story. But it's also a political story. Yeah. Well, uh, Donald Trump is getting very nervous because if a recession hits in 2020, it'll be bad for his reelection campaign. Uh, and he's taken off after Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell saying the Fed urgently needs to lower interest rates. If he did that, if the Fed did that, then the inversion would go away because the short-term rates would come down right. and we'd have a more of a normal-shaped yield curve. So the war continues in some ways. Maybe it's a one-sided war between the president and the Federal Reserve. That's right. Talk to me about the story you have this week in the magazine, because you go all the way back to a Business Week cover story 40 years ago? Uh, 
Forty years ago, August uh, 1979, Business Week ran a cover story called The Death of Equities, and people are still giving us a hard time about it because, of course, equities have done quite nicely. Now, uh, the, the article came out at a time when inflation was very high, and what we were observing was that stocks were, did not seem to be a very good hedge against inflation. Right. What was a good hedge was gold, uh, diamonds, uh, single-family homes, and my favorite, uh, stamps. That was my favorite, too. I can't even <laughs> believe that that was a thing. Can you imagine? Uh, and fine art, to be, to be another, one, uh, another example of something that people were buying because right. stocks were not providing them the protection they needed. So what happened after that is that the article was really right for three years because stock continued to go down and down and down. But then in 1982, um, after Paul Volcker, the chairman of the Federal Reserve, had managed to squeeze inflation out of the system through two punishing back-to-back -back recessions, the conditions were set for the rebound. So if you look at the market now, the S&P, uh, if you invested uh, dividends uh, over that period of time, we up 7,000% Wow! since so, that article came out. So not bad for a corpse. Right. So story uh, right in the short term, but very wrong in the long term. Glad that our readers are keeping us honest and that we're owning up to it. That's Peter Coy. And I got to tell you, he has institutional knowledge about the markets and the magazine that pretty much no one else has. Love his historical perspective. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Coming up, our pursuit section it features the best massage you've ever had. Got to check that out. This is Bloomberg. James Gaddy here with me to talk a little bit of pursuits. Jim, I feel like this is about living your best life in pursuits this week. A great massage, a way to wake up a little bit better, even some beer that actually tastes like beer but doesn't have any alcohol. Let's start with a nice massage. You know, it's funny you mentioned that because... Uh, have you ever gotten a massage and just thought, you know, the only way this would be better is if I could lose five pounds while I was doing it? Absolutely. <laughs> uh, we did a story on lymphatic drainage massage. Uh, we found a, uh, a doctor in Upper East Side, Dr. Ryan Neinstein, and uh, he realized that there were some people coming in for these massages. They're usually reserved uh, for people recovering from liposuction or mm -hmm. invasive procedures such as that. Uh, but he found that these people were coming in. They weren't. Uh, they were just coming in for the lose the weight uh, overnight. Uh, it's basically. Uh, I mean, whenever those op post-operative people were coming in, it was uh, a way to reduce swelling. It kind of coaxes fluid out of the soft tissue. But it also helps you lose weight. Wow. So this is becoming a thing. It's becoming a thing. If you go on, uh, uh, you know, Meghan Markle, uh, you know, Haley Bieber, some of these uh, celebrities, uh, Kim Kardashian West, before they went to the Met Gala, had this procedure done. Uh, it is, uh, it sounds a little bit uncomfortable. Um, you know, there's a very strategic, you know, placement of the hands and rubbing on the back of the neck. Uh, your lymph nodes basically will expel this water uh, over the course of the day. The doctor compared it to kind of uh, the f being hungover, uh -huh. uh, but without the headache. Wow. <laughs> Does it cost a lot? Uh, a one-hour session is about $300. Okay. And, uh, so, so a little more cheap. than your average massage. Yeah, a little bit more than the average massage. But, uh, you know, it is... Um, it's apparently really popular. The people who are doing this uh, mostly are found on social media. If you go on some of the uh, names that we put in the magazine, um, sometimes there's just a WhatsApp number. 
uh, on their profile, and then they'll just travel from Fashion Week to Fashion Week, and people will just hit them up. <laughs> wow. All right. So, meanwhile, it, you might feel better if you're, speaking of hangovers, uh, if you're having a beer, but it doesn't have any alcohol in it. I was fascinated by this because I think many people who enjoy beer, as I do, uh, really do like the taste, but are increasingly worried about calories and alcohol. It's true. Uh, there was a, um, a survey that was uh, came out this year, found that 84% of people who do drink are looking to drink less. Wow. Which uh, I found, I don't know, it was really interesting. We're a, we're a far cry from Mad Men, aren't we, Jim? <laughs> it's a little bit different world these days. Uh, but uh, it, one of the things that was interesting to me is the growth of this uh, low and no categories, what they're calling it. Uh, you know, your average beer has about four, four and a half percent uh, alcohol uh, in it. Uh, this category is kind of like anything less than 2.5 percent thereabouts. No alcohol beer technically does have a little bit, yeah. like 0.5 percent. Uh, but, you know, there's only been two ways in the past to get to no alcohol beer. Uh, one was to kind of halt the brewing process before the flavor develops. The other way was to kind of like burn off the alcohol, yeah. which kind of scorches the flavor. Uh, we profiled a guy from who started Wellbeing Brewing in St. Louis, home of Anheuser-Busch. Yeah. Uh, and he uh, discovered some scientists in Munich, Germany, who had uh, come up with this method for brewing. It was vacuum distilling. Basically lowers the temperature, and but preserves the flavor, keeps the alcohol out. And uh, it's been getting great reviews online. We taste tested uh, the he has four beers in uh, his um, portfolio. Mm-hmm. One of them is kind of like a Blue Moon, um, but it has 100 calories less. Uh, one of them is kind of like a I mean has kind of like the flavor profile of a Sam Smith, mm-hmm. uh, kind of sweet and chocolatey, and uh, they're really delicious. And it's I mean. Uh, and the fact that this category is really growing, I mean, Anheuser-Busch expects this low and no category to make 20% of its revenues in five years. In that, that blew me away in yeah. this story. And, and yet it sort of makes sense when you think about these active lifestyles and you think about the success of like a Michelob Ultra, mm-hmm. um, which is really geared toward the highly active, you know, marathon running set, 100 calories uh, or less. So are we going to see this move uh, into the mainstream? Clearly, that's what these guys want. I think it is. Uh, you know, and one of the nice things about this is because it doesn't have alcohol in it, they can mail them anywhere. Right. And so you can just order them online. Uh, they all have e-commerce uh you know, options. Uh, there was a few others that we mentioned in the story, Bravas, uh, Athletic. Uh, they all kind of have different uh, points that they're trying to hit in this market, but uh, it's clearly growing. And even the, the, the big boys of this uh, group think it's going to be much, much bigger than it already is. And that's James Gaddy bringing you all sorts of ways to stay healthy here at the end of summer. Well, sticking with Pursuits, the opener this week, it comes from James Tarmy. He looks at the art world quite holistically. And this week, he takes a look at what some people consider dirty money and the implications it's having as more and more people protest where the funding's coming from. I have to say, this piece, it's an essay of sorts, really breaking this down, goes to the heart of one of the biggest debates in art right now. Yes, and what's fascinating is that most of the time, debates in art stay within the art world. And this has spilled out into the mainstream. And that's because 
these protests that are occurring in museums across the United States and across Europe have to do with some very, very wealthy families who have been doing some very controversial things. So there's the Sackler family, which uh, owned Purdue Pharma, which produced OxyContin, um, which various lawsuits are alleging was uh, responsible for perpetuating the opioid epidemic. And then uh, there's also uh, a man named Warren Canders, who owns a company named Safariland LLC, which uh, produces tear gas, which protesters allege is was used during uh, confrontations at the U.S.-Mexico border. And it just so happens that the Sackler family and Warren Canders are both major arts patrons. Right. And there is a tremendous movement um, from a lot of different people to remove the Sackler family and remove Candors from the various cultural institutions. Now, the point of all of this is that protesters are basically alleging that cultural institutions are in whatever way um, forward-looking and liberal and espouse various worldviews that are completely in opposition to uh, people like the Sacklers and the Candras family. And they feel that the imprimatur of these cultural institutions is in whatever way art washing um, the the names mm-hmm. of Candras and the Sacklers um, in a way where they, they benefit in a way that they shouldn't. Right. So let's take a step back because what you've just laid out goes to the very core of how institutions, cultural institutions, have been funded for centuries, maybe millennia in some ways. That's exactly right. And the entire thing is that in Europe, a lot of institutions are uh, funded by the government. In the United States, cultural institutions have always been paid for by wealthy people. And in the United States, most wealthy people have made their money in ways that are not necessarily completely blameless, right? There's only a finite number of people whose fortunes are derived from green energy, you yeah. know, and everyone else is in whatever way potentially subject to unwelcome scrutiny. The issue then is that museums rely on this vast wealth to stay in business um, and they don't really have any other way of getting money. Um, right. there, there aren't public funds available. And so as museums attempt to respond to these protesters, they're put in this very interesting position, and some might say impossible position, wherein they want to be responsive to their constituents, but they also need to keep the lights on. Right. And this is the real crux of the issue, and no one has a great answer for how to uh, keep this going moving forward. Well, because let's take a virtual stroll through the various wings of the various museums here in New York City, look at the outsides of the buildings, look at the boards of trustees, and you don't have to dig very deep to find oil money, private equity money, hedge fund money, all sorts of things pharmaceutical money, as you mentioned, with the the Sacklers. So what's a museum to do? So currently, they have no idea, um, is the short answer. You know, they um, obviously are not necessarily in a position to pick and choose. And leaving aside the fact that there 
it's extremely difficult to decide what is good and what is bad because let's not forget 10 years ago, um, this conversation wouldn't be happening mm -hmm. and social mores and expectations really shift quite quickly. So um, building a blameless board of rich people is a near impossible task. Then there's also the perspective that a lot of museums are taking, which is that as long as this money has been made legally, it's better that the money is going to the arts and all of these quite progressive ideas than someone's cashmere rug in Southampton. And that's James Tarmy bringing us the protests and the implications in the art world, funding not so certain anymore. And that wraps up Bloomberg Business Week's weekend podcast. Thanks so much for joining us. I'm Jason Kelly. Be sure to tune in to Bloomberg Business Week Radio live Monday through Friday, starting at 2 p.m. Wall Street time. And if you can't listen in live, download, subscribe to our podcast. You can get that wherever you get your podcasts. You can also get this week's edition of the magazine on newsstands now. This is Bloomberg. Bloomberg.